Let's begin our study of the Belgic Confession this afternoon by turning to Psalm 99 and reading that psalm. Psalm 99, psalm about the holiness of God especially. The Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He dwells between the cherubim, let the earth be moved. The Lord is great in Zion, and he is high above all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name, he is holy. The king's strength also loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool, he is holy. Moses and Aaron were among his priests, and Samuel was among those who called upon his name. They called upon the Lord, and he answered them. He spoke to them in the cloudy pillar. They kept his testimonies and the ordinance he gave them. You answered them, O Lord our God. You were to them God who forgives, though you took vengeance on their deeds. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy hill, for the Lord our God is holy. This afternoon, uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, we're going to uh, begin our study of the Belgic Confession and of uh, this summary of biblical doctrine by looking at Article 1. I'm going to try to get through the whole article. There's a lot in it. So I'm not going to introduce the Confession to you by talking at all about its history or its author. You can look at the introduction to the Confession, as you find it on page 52 in the Three Forms of Unity book. It's a, quite an interesting little history that you see there. But I want to jump right into the study of the Confession itself. Now, we've already uh, talked about this Confession a little bit once before. We talked about the organization of the material in the Confession, and we noticed that the um, material in the Confession is organized according to the main heads of doctrine that you will find in most uh, modern dogmatics books. And there are basically seven of those heads of doctrine. There's the doctrine of Scripture or the doctrine of Revelation. There's the doctrine of God, which we call theology. The doctrine of man which we call anthropology, the doctrine of salvation and of Christ, which we call soteriology and Christology, the doctrine of the church, ecclesiology, and the doctrine of the last things, eschatology. And we begin here with Article 1 in the Belgic with uh, an article about uh, the doctrine of God. Uh, the attributes of God, but then you'll notice that immediately after this uh, confession goes to the doctrine of revelation in Articles 2 to 7, it comes back to the doctrine of God in Article 8. So this, kind of, this article kind of stands by itself. And the article is about the attributes of God. The attributes of God. Before we look at the individual attributes that are uh, listed here in the article, there are uh, several things that I'd like to say about those attributes. First of all, of course, the study of the attributes of God as he has revealed those attributes in the scriptures is a study that should lead us to understand the greatness of God. He is great, he is overwhelmingly majestic, in all of his attributes. As we, as, as we look at these attributes, we want to be impressed especially then with his greatness, with his exceeding greatness. And we want them to be led to worship him and to glorify his name. The second thing that we want to say about his attributes is that we usually, though the confession itself does not do this, we usually divide those attributes into two groups. We call them the communicable and the incommunicable attributes. 
That is, the attributes that God gives in a measure to his creatures, to us, in our creation, those are the communicable attributes, and the attributes that he does not give to us in our creation, the incommunicable attributes. As an example of the communicable attributes, we may talk, for example, about his holiness. He is holy. But when he created us in the beginning, he also created us holy, like himself. So that's a communicable attribute. But an incommunicable attribute would be his omnipotence. He is the God who can do whatever he pleases. And though he gives to us strength, he does not give us the ability to do whatever we please. He has put limits on our strength. He has, in fact, made us part of a complex creation, which creation itself imposes certain limits on us and on the exercise of our strength. So our strength is not infinite inherently, and our strength is also limited and imposed on by external factors. So that's an incommunicable attribute of God, his omnipotence. And I'm not sure that that Distinction in the attributes of God is all that helpful for understanding God himself. But what I, want, I bring it up here because I want us to understand that in both of these kinds of attributes, the communicable and the incommunicable attributes, God is infinitely greater than we are. That's obvious, of course, when we're talking about his omnipotence, or when we're talking about his infinity, or when we're talking about his eternity. It's very obvious that he is much greater than we are in those things. But, for example, again, when we talk about his holiness as a communicable attribute, we are like him in a certain way, but in only a measured way, only in a creaturely way. No one would ever do what the angels did in the presence of God. Cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. No one would ever say such words of us. Our holiness is not that great. Far from being that great. His holiness is infinite. And so, as we look at both of these kinds of attributes of God, always we want to be seeing that he is infinitely greater than ourselves. The third thing that I want to say by way of introduction to this subject of the attributes of God is that really, technically speaking, and I recognize that this is a very technical point, but I think nevertheless a a useful and helpful point, and that is that when we define the attributes of God, We should not define those attributes in relation to ourselves or to the creation. And the reason that we should not do that, of course, is that God is the eternal God. And all his attributes existed in himself before the creation. He is what he is apart from the creation. And so we should seek to understand him, not as he is in relation to the creation, though sometimes that will help us, but we should seek to understand him also as he is in himself, in his own eternal and infinite glory, in the fullness that belongs to him, without reference to his creation. He has no need of the creation in order to be what he is in all his attributes. And... Again, I think it's probably helpful to illustrate this point. When we talk about the infinity of God, that's one of the attributes that the article of the Confession lists. When we talk about the infinity of God, we could define it as meaning that God is present everywhere in his creation. And that's a great truth, of course, which the scriptures talk about. He is a God at hand, not simply a God afar off. 
He is present everywhere in his creation. But you see, when we talk about his omnipresence, we're talking about him in relation to the creation. And if we're going to define him, or we're going to understand him apart from his creation, as he is in himself, then I think we would talk not about his omnipresence, but about his infinity. And what we understand by his infinity is that he's not limited by space. Omnipresence, then, is a consequence of his infinity. It's the revelation of his infinity to us, who are creatures. But one more example also, and this one from the article itself, the article lists as one of the attributes of God his justice. That he is perfectly wise, just, good, and the overflowing fountain of all good. Now, if you define justice, you would say that means that uh, uh, someone deals fairly with all those with whom he comes into contact. And God's justice is that he deals fairly, deals righteously with all his creatures. But you see, again, you're talking about it in relation to the creature. Justice is how he reveals then that righteousness, which is his apart from the creature. Justice is technically speaking, not really an attribute of God. It is righteousness that is an attribute of God. And justice is the consequence and the revelation of that righteousness of God to us. So those are the three things that we uh, want to, that I wanted to say before we get into the study of the attributes themselves. Now the first of the attributes that we have here in this article is the uniqueness of God. We believe with the heart and confess with the mouth that there is one only simple and spiritual being which we call God. There is only one God. That's what we mean by his uniqueness. Now this is a truth which is talked about directly in the scriptures in many, many different passages. And I'll refer you only to 1 Corinthians 8, where the Apostle Paul explicitly states this truth. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 4 and 5, verses 4, 5, and 6, Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no other God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. There's one God, but it's not just a, a doctrine, the uniqueness of God. It's not just a doctrine that the scriptures talk about directly in many passages, but it's a doctrine that's assumed, I think you could say assumed on every page of the scriptures from the very beginning to the very end. When the scriptures say in the very first verse of the Old Testament, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, the scriptures do not mean in the beginning, a God created the heavens and the earth. They mean the God, the one and only God, about whom all the rest of the scriptures talk. And whenever we find that divine name or any of the divine names in the scriptures, it is this one God who's being talked about. The scriptures don't flip back and forth and say in Genesis 1, well, there's this God who created, but then talk about a different God in Genesis chapter 3 and following, or, or something like that. There's one God in all the scriptures, and this is simply assumed. This is, of course, a fundamental truth of our faith, and it is one of the most obnoxious truths of the scriptures in our world today. It is obnoxious to the unbelieving, they hear our confession, and our confession is, I think we should point that out too, our confession is a confession of truth, that is, of objective fact, 
Our confession is not a confession of a particular opinion with which others may freely disagree. It's a confession of a truth, an objective truth, which all ought to receive. But the world hears this, and this sounds like terrible pride and presumption to them, that you dare to stand up before men, and you dare to deny that the gods whom they worship are gods, that you dare to say those are no gods at all? Who do you think you are? What makes you think you can say that kind of thing? That you are the one who knows the true God, and all these others who worship these other gods know no true God, worship a false God. It's becoming so obnoxious, in fact, to our world today that it is becoming, again, a cause of persecution to Christians. But we should remember that this was a truth also very obnoxious to the Roman world in which the apostles first preached the gospel. When the unbelieving world began to understand that this is what the Christians were saying, there is one God, the Father, And one Lord Jesus Christ, who rules over heaven and earth and all things at the right hand of God. And they began to understand that. That became one of the primary causes of persecution of Christians in that world. But it is true that we confess. We don't say, this is just our opinion and everybody else is free to have their own opinion. We say, this is true. This is truth, and everyone else must confess this truth. And those who do not confess this truth will fall under the judgment of the God whom we confess. Now the implication of this truth, that there is only one God, is of course that we must worship and acknowledge only Him. You shall have no other gods before Him. That's the basic implication of this truth for us. There is only one God. You shall have no other gods before him. The second attribute of God, which is listed here, is his simplicity. His simplicity. And this word does not here in this theological context have the meaning that it would usually have when we use it. That is, it does not mean that God is not complex. He is a complex God. He's a God whom we do not understand fully. What his simplicity means is that he has no parts. We have parts. We have body and soul, which will be separated at death. We have fingers and toes and arms and noses and teeth and hearts. And in fact, in having these parts, you can lose certain parts of what you are and still remain essentially a man. You can lose a hand and remain a man. You can uh, lose your mind through dementia or something like that and still remain a man, a person. Your attributes, then, are separable from you in some way. And God is not, not only has no parts, but you cannot separate anything that belongs to him from him. So you, can't, you can conceive, for example, of us no longer being righteous, as happened when we fell in Adam. But we did not cease to be people, to be humans, when we fell into sin. We became unrighteous, but we did not cease to be humans. But you cannot say the same about God. You cannot take away from him an attribute, any one of his attributes, and say that he will still be God. His attributes are essential to what he is. And they all are present in him, 
from eternity to eternity. In fact, the scriptures are so emphatic on this point that on, on at least a couple of occasions in 1 John, the scriptures say that God is his attributes. God is light. God is love. He's, you can't separate those things from him. He is those things. And to be other than that would mean that he would be no longer God. But that also implies, doesn't it, that these attributes of God can never be in conflict with each other. They exist in him harmoniously. And I think that the scriptures illustrate this point very beautifully when they talk about his justice and his mercy. In, for example, Psalm 85. God's justice and his mercy cannot be in conflict with each other. Our Heidelberg Catechism in question and answer 11 also makes this point. Question and answer 11. But is not God also merciful? That is, why can't God simply forgive our sins? God is indeed merciful, but he is likewise just. His justice, therefore, requires that sin which is committed against the most high majesty of God be punished with extreme, that is, with everlasting punishment, both of body and soul. And the plain implication of that for us is, people of God, that God is that God cannot be merciful to us without also being just. He cannot, for the sake of his mercy, simply deny his justice. Because then he would not be God anymore. He would not be righteous. His mercy to us must be a just mercy. And that just mercy is revealed in our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the righteousness of God, who suffered under the righteousness of God as we should have suffered and on our behalf, and through whom, therefore, God is justly merciful to us. His mercy to us is a just mercy. And that's a very great comfort, isn't it? It's not an arbitrary mercy. It's not the kind of mercy that a judge in our society might show to a criminal for whom he feels sorry. He simply says, well, uh, the circumstances in which you committed this crime were such that I think you shouldn't be punished. Let's just forget about punishment and let you go free. Let's forget about justice. He shows mercy in conflict with justice. But that's a very arbitrary thing, isn't it? If the prosecution should appeal that decision of the just to the next level in the courts, it might well be that the next judge would say, no, we're not going to be merciful, we're going to be just. And you're going to suffer the punishment of your sins. But God's mercy is just, and that means he doesn't reverse his sentence of innocence against us. He is just in Christ. His justice in Christ means that he does and always will forgive our sins. So that's his simplicity. The next attribute is his spirituality. Now this is a very difficult attribute to define. And it's very difficult to define because we don't really know what a pure spirit is. We can't conceive, because we are creatures who are both corporeal and spiritual, we can't conceive, for example, of thinking without a physical brain. We can't conceive of doing without a physical hand. We can't conceive of speaking without a physical mouth. To us, these things are so inextricably bound up that it's impossible for us to conceive of a purely spiritual being, that is, even of an angel, who is a purely spiritual 
being. How does an angel think without a brain? How does an angel do without hands? How does an angel speak without a mouth? We don't know. And the same applies to God. And what we end up doing then as we try to define this attribute of God's spirituality is we talk in negatives. We say he's not corporeal. He does not have a physical body. But that's telling us what he's not, not what he is. It's as if someone would uh, ask you to define a car and you would say, well, it's not a truck. It, it tells you maybe a little bit about a car, but it doesn't tell you much. This is, this is the nature of spirituality, pure spirituality. We, we can't conceive of it. God is greater, again, than our minds can conceive in this matter. The scriptures do speak of him as if he had a hand and a mouth and an arm and so on. But those are what we call anthropomorphisms, anthropomorphisms, describing God in human terms so that we can get some kind of understanding of what he is. But the, the implication of this attribute of God for us, the spirituality of God is that we must worship in spirit and truth. This is what Jesus said in John chapter 4. God is a spirit, or God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. I think that we can be fairly specific about what that actually means. When Jesus says those who worship him must worship him in spirit, He means, I think, that we can only worship God by and in the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit, who is himself spirit, to connect us to this living spiritual God. There's no other way that we can have any kind of connection with God unless we have the Spirit of God dwelling in us. For it is the Spirit of God, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, who searches the deep things of God, who knows the mind of God and who then reveals the mind of God to us. And when Jesus said, you must worship God in truth, I think what he meant was a contrast between Old Testament and New Testament. He was talking about that in the context, wasn't he? The Samaritan woman had asked him about the uh, mountain where the Samaritans worshipped him versus the mountain where the Jews worshipped him. And Jesus had basically said to her, you have to worship where the Jews worship. That's the place God chose. But he went on and said to her, those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. That is, ultimately, there is going to be no mountain needed for the worship of God. You have to worship in truth. That is, you have to worship in the spiritual realities to which those Old Testament things pointed. You do not worship him then in the temple on Mount Zion any longer. That was not truth. That was a sign of truth. You must worship him in his spiritual temple, his church. You must not offer to him any longer the blood of bulls and goats for the atonement of sin. That was a sign of truth. There is a real blood of Christ that has been offered for sin. When you bring your sacrifices to God, you must not bring him animal sacrifices any longer. You must bring him yourself, offering yourselves as living sacrifices of thankfulness to him. I think that's what he meant by truth. You have to worship him according to the spiritual realities of the New Testament. That is, our worship must conform to what God is. He is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. 
Next, we have his eternity. God's eternity. And this is another one hard to conceive. The scriptures say in Psalm 90, verse 1, From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Before the mountains were brought forth, wherever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. We think of it as time extended infinitely backward and infinitely forward. That's how we think of eternity, and that's the best we can do. But really, I think what the eternity of God means is that he's not subject to time either, in that he's not subject to the succession of moments, or if you want, to the ticking of the clock. We are always subject to time. We're always limited by time. We always change as time passes. God is not limited by time. He doesn't live in time. He lives outside of time. C.S. Lewis says somewhere in one of his essays that God is the everlasting now. He is. He said to Moses, you want to know who I am? I am who I am. I am who I am. Or to shorten it simply, I am. I am the eternal one. I am not subject to the kinds of constraints, the kinds of things that constrain you. I do not say I was without adding I am and I always will be or without saying I am who I am. He doesn't subject himself. He is not subject to time. And this creates a difficulty for us because, of course, the eternal one, this eternal God, works in time. Eternity touches time. And how are we then to conceive of eternity touching time? Eternity working, eternity working in time. The scriptures say, for example, his anger lasts a moment, his favor all our days. Now in our experience, of course, that's true. His anger passes with the passing of the night and there's joy in the morning. But what does it mean for the eternal one? Does the eternal one's anger in himself last for a moment? And his favor all our days? That would suggest, wouldn't it, that he's subject to time again. So we get again, I think, into an area where we have to say, we don't know God is too great. God is beyond our comprehension. He is majestic and glorious. The next attribute is his incomprehensibility. Now when we talk about his incomprehensibility, we mean simply that we can never know him fully. We can never know all that there is to know about God. He is the infinite God after all. His judgments are mighty deep. His righteousness is like the great mountains. His greatness ascends above the clouds. His way is in the sea. We know him in the next article, the Belgic Confession says, that we know him as far as is necessary for us to know in this life, to his glory and our salvation. Yes, we know him. And we know him truly. Let's not get it into our heads that because we don't know him fully, we can't know him truly. We know him truly, but we cannot know him fully. 
Again, he's too great for a finite mind to comprehend. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. And that means for us, doesn't it, that we can never fully explain his works. In a very practical sense, there are many things about God's reasons and about God's works that are hidden from us. We can't plumb his depths. We can't ascend to his heights. We are simply not big enough to do those things. His ways are incomprehensible to us. Far beyond our ability to understand. This was where Job stumbled, right? He said he wanted to understand why God had done what he had done. Why did you do this? If you would only God let me argue with you, I could prove to you that I didn't deserve this punishment, this judgment that has come on me. And God's answer to him was, are you God? Did you make the creation? Do you govern the creation? Can you explain to me the uh, strength of the horse, the foolishness of the ostrich, the strength of the Leviathan? Stand up, he says, be a man. And contend with me, if you will. And Job basically said, I'm a fool. I didn't know what I was talking about. I'm just going to shut up now. The next attribute of God is his invisibility. And what this means, of course, is that God cannot be seen. John says in chapter 1 of his gospel, No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. Even Moses, whose face shone with the glory of the vision of God that he had seen on Mount Sinai, had not seen God as he is in himself. He had seen a very glorious revelation of God. And that very glorious revelation of God had made his face shine. But no man has seen God at any time. In his invisibility, I think God is also different from the angels. The angels are also invisible to us. They're in the world. They're working in the world. They're doing God's work in the world. They're sent forth, Hebrews 1 tells us, to be ministers to the heirs of salvation. They're serving us here. They're pro- probably some of them are present right here, right now, in this auditorium. But we can't see them. We don't have the equipment to perceive them. Personally, I think, though this is somewhat speculative, that when we get to heaven and we have our spiritual bodies, our spiritual bodies, we will be able to perceive them in some way. But God cannot be seen, period. We will never see God as he is in himself. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father He has revealed him. We see him. We see his glory in the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. When we go to heaven, we will see the Lord Jesus Christ in the fullness of his divine glory, because he has become incarnate and remains incarnate in glory, and reveals to us in that incarnate glory, the glory of the invisible God. And when we see him in that glory, we will be like him. We will be transformed in a moment to the same glory.
Next is his immutability or his unchangeability. We change all the time. We are creatures who are subject to time, to outside influences, to internal growth and decay. We're always changing. Cells die and fall off. Minds learn and acquire knowledge or forget knowledge. Fingernails grow and need to be trimmed. Hair falls out. We're always changing. We're subject to change all the time. Ultimately, of course, we fall into decay and return to the dust from which we were taken. But God does not change. He does not change in his being. He does not change in his attributes. He does not change in his character. He does not change in his plans. I am the Lord. I change not. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. He doesn't need to grow. He has all that he needs for himself in himself from eternity. He doesn't need to change. Because he is the all-wise God who anticipates all things, who knows all things from the beginning. He is the immutable one, the unchangeable one. And for us, again, people of God, that means that he does not change in his promises to us. And he does not change in the fundamental character of his dealing with us. He does not change in his law. He does not change in his righteousness. But also he does not change in the word of the gospel. And he does not change in his love. I am the Lord. I change not. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. This is a strong foundation for our confidence Our confidence is not, people of God, that we will be able to persist in faith until the Lord takes us to heaven. That's not our confidence. Our confidence is that the Lord, who has begun a good work in us, will also complete it. He is the one who does not change. Next is his infinity. We could here talk about his omnipresence. He is present everywhere in his creation, but you see again, that would be defining the attribute in relation to the creation. And so I think it's better, as the confession does, to talk about his infinity. And what we mean by that is he is not bound by space or subject to the laws of space. He's not subject to the law of gravity. He's not subject to the laws of motion. He's not subject to the laws of electricity and light and time and all these other things. He's he's outside space. He exists. The heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you, Solomon said to him. How much less this house which I have built. He's above all of creation and therefore governs it according to his will. But for us, the implication of his infinity is that he is present with us, fully present with us in all of his being, wherever we are. As David confesses in Psalm 139, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there you are. There is no escape from his presence. He is the one who is infinite and therefore present everywhere, in every place. We cannot hide from him. And the solution to that difficulty for us is the solution that David gives us in Psalm 139, the very last verse. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I cannot escape you, therefore I will submit to you. 
The next attribute mentioned here is his omnipotence, or his almightiness. This attribute, of course, as we know well, does not mean that God can do anything. He cannot lie. He cannot will himself to be other than he is. What the omnipotence of God means is that he can do anything that he wants to do. He does his good pleasure in heaven and on earth. He has done whatever he has pleased. No one, none none of his creatures of any sort can place any constraints on his power. And there are no internal limits to what his power can do. If he wants to do a thing, he can do it. He has the power to do it. In fact, his power is so great that he can create the world with a word. He can say, let there be light, and there will be light. Let there be a firmament above the heavens, and there will be a firmament above the heavens. Let there be life, and there will be light. He says that even to the dead, as Jesus said to Lazarus. Let there be life, and the dead arose. And of course, for us, this omnipotence of God means that he can do whatever we ask in his name. Whatever he promises to do for us. Whatever is necessary for our salvation. He has demonstrated it over and over and over again in the history of the world. That he is able to do whatever pleases him, whatever is necessary for our salvation. And he demonstrated it especially in that greatest and grandest of all the miracles that he performed, the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ, where God became man, far beyond the ability of a human mind to comprehend a God who can do such wonders. but also in the resurrection and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. He can deliver from death. He can defeat the devil. He can save the most stubborn and wicked of sinners. He can do all things that he wants to do. Next is his wisdom. Wisdom is the ability to determine the best ends And the best means to achieve those ends, the best goals, and the best means to achieve those goals. So, for example, a man may want to be an entrepreneur and set himself the goal of becoming an entrepreneur. And wisdom is understanding that, for him anyway, that's the best goal in that particular area of life. The best goal is to be an entrepreneur. But he also then if he's wise, understands what is necessary to achieve that goal. And he goes to work to accomplish those things that are necessary to the achieving of the goal. He knows the best means to that best end that he has chosen. And God is the all-wise God. He has an end, a goal, the glory of his own name. I will not give my glory to another. And he achieves that goal of the glory of his name through the very mysterious way of salvation and judgment in the world and the establishment of the kingdom of Christ in the end. His wisdom is beyond our comprehension, again, We look at his ways and we can't see his wisdom. They look very foolish to us. Think about, for example, his way of fulfilling his promise to Abraham. He said, I'm going to make your seed the heirs of this land in which you're a sojourner. What was the first thing he did? He denied Abraham and Sarah even one child until they were too old 
to have a child. And then he gave him. To Isaac he gave a barren wife who could not bear the seed that would inherit the land. And he gave them children. To Jacob he gave twelve sons. And there was such enmity between those sons that eleven of them sent one of them into slavery in Egypt. From a human point of view, enormous wickedness. Enormous wickedness against their brother. Joseph says God meant it for good. That was his wisdom that sent me down here to save much people alive. But even Joseph didn't fully comprehend what God was doing, or at least we don't receive any indications of that from Joseph's words. God brought the whole of the family of Jacob into Egypt to live in slavery for 400 years. And then to go back and inherit the land. That's his wisdom. And we look at it and we say, that's wisdom? Yes! I don't understand it. You don't understand it. That's wisdom. The foolishness of God is wiser than men. We look at the foolishness of preaching, as Paul calls it in 1 Corinthians 1. We say, God has chosen to put his eternal word into this clay pot, this brittle and crazy glass. God has chosen to reveal his word through such vessels. That's his wisdom. So he's wise, but wise in a way that we're never going to fully comprehend. And it's for us then to live in submission to the wisdom of God in our own lives. Not rebelling against him and saying, God, you don't know what you're doing. He does. Not despairing and saying to him, You've given me too much to bear. He doesn't. He has promised. But submitting and saying, Your will be done. The next attribute is His justice. Now, you remember that I said, technically speaking, we cannot really define the attributes of God in connection with his creation, and justice, of course, would be his dealing with his creatures, his fairness in dealing with his creatures. Technically, therefore, not really an attribute of God, but a working out, rather, the revelation of the attribute of righteousness. I think that's what we should understand here. We're talking about the righteousness of God. But again, we've run into difficulties. How do you define the righteousness of God? If I asked you what it means for you to be righteous, you would say, well, it means for me to be in conformity to the law of God. It means for me to obey his law, to do what he commands. That's righteousness. You can't say that about God. God's righteousness is not conformity to his law. He existed before his law. And his righteousness consisted in him, existed in him before he ever revealed the law to us. And in his law, he's saying to us, be like me. He's revealing his righteousness to us. He says over and over again in Leviticus, you have to be holy, Israel, you have to be holy because I am holy. And then he gives them all these laws that they have to obey to imitate his holiness. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, be therefore perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Peter says in 1 Peter 1, Be holy as the Lord your God is holy. You can't define his righteousness then as conformity to his law. Well, how do you define it? You resort again 
to negatives. There's no sin in him. There's no darkness in him. There's no unrighteousness in him. All his ways and works are righteous. What he does is right by definition because he has done it. You can never challenge the righteousness of God because whatever he does flows out of his eternally righteous being. Whatever he does is righteous by definition. And for us, that means, as we've already pointed out, that his dealings with us are just and righteous. Always, whatever he does, is just and righteous. Next is his goodness. That could mean moral goodness or beneficence. Either a reference to his holiness or a reference to his kindness. I'm not sure which way we should take it, but we can say just a couple words about each. His moral goodness is his holiness. And this is the attribute of God that stands out above all the others in men's encounters with him and in the angels' encounters with him as well. When the angels behold the glory of the infinite God seated on his throne, They cover their faces and cry, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. What men see in him is not first his love and mercy and kindness, his beneficence and all those things. What men see first in him is his holiness. His holiness means that he is light and in him is no darkness at all. His holiness is so great That he hates and despises our sins. This is the consequence of that holiness for us. His holiness is so great that he hates and despises sins and sinners. He abhors the bloody and deceitful man. He will have nothing to do with sin. He hates sin so much that rather than it should go unpunished, he has punished it in his beloved son. On the cross. There is the demonstration of his holiness. That he could not and would not pass by sin for our salvation, but instead gave his son to the bitter and shameful death of the cross. And the consequence of this attribute is that we must strive to be like him, we must worship him in the beauty of holiness. We must, seeing his holiness, not flee from that holiness. We cannot. But pray that he will make us more and more conformable to his own holiness. As revealed in the glorious face of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pursue holiness with all of our being. With heart and mind and soul. But if it means his kindness or his beneficence here. Then we can take with it the next phrase in the article, the last phrase. He is also the overflowing fountain of all good. He's not a God who delights in capriciousness, in cruelty, in meanness, in spitefulness, in hate, in unloving deeds. He delights in giving and doing good. Comprehended in that goodness of God are his love, his mercy, his grace, his patience, all those Attributes of God, if you want to call them that, which are not even mentioned here in the article directly. His goodness, and he is the overflowing fountain of all good. He opens his hand wide to his creature and pours out on them an abundance of good things. He gives his rain and his sunshine. He shows patience Even with the wicked, he gives them wealth, he gives them health, he gives them families and friends, and he gives the wicked all kinds of things, and he gives us more, because he has given us salvation in our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the overflowing fountain of all good. But what I said 
at the beginning, people of God applies here again, finally, that in all this discussion of the attributes of God, we should be impressed with his greatness. And we should learn to fear him. When the scriptures talk about the various attributes of God, all these different things that we've been describing here, that's what the scriptures have in mind. The scriptures want us to know who this God is, what he's like, so that we may fear him, so that we may adore him, worship him, glorify him, humble him ourselves before him. May God bless us with his word.